morning, everybody. Welcome into the Mining Stock Daily Longform episode for this week in a Friday morning. Good Friday morning to you. Trevor Hall here, your host once again. We have a two-segment episode for you. First, we welcome back the Daily Dirt Naps, Jared Dillian. He's been writing about a number of things in his morning newsletter that I had to follow up with him, including this ongoing saga of the debt ceiling. What is the probability of something really bad happening? Uh, if you've been reading Jared's work, uh, you know, a couple about a week or two ago, he was expressing some dire concerns. So we follow up with him about that and then a number of other topics, obviously, heading into a big macro conversation. In the second segment, we follow up with David Finch, no stranger to the gold mining sector. We haven't talked about the big M&A news with Newmont Newcrest much on the podcast, so we do that with David. Uh, you know, the good, the bad, and the ugly with this deal. And we also talk about a little bit of a summary of what we're seeing with the Q1 production numbers as well. So good uh, general conversation about the, the, the status of gold mining here in the early months of 2023. Special thank you to Western Copper and Gold, Fireweed Metals, and Arizona Sonoran Copper for your continued support of the podcast. And if you wouldn't mind, please leave a review of the podcast on the network you use to listen to each episode. It just just does a tremendous amount of good to get constructive feedback all the time. All right, everybody. I hope you enjoyed this two-segment episode. It's great conversations. Have a wonderful weekend. Be well. Good morning, everybody. Welcome into the uh, weekend long-form episode here on Mining Stock Daily. Uh, We'll talk a little bit about metals, but we're going to focus on some bigger topics today with our good friend Jared Dillian of the Daily Dirt Nap and also author of Those Bastards, uh, his new book, which is, Jared, now out on audiobook. Is that correct? Yeah, it just came out yesterday on audiobook, so... I'm not a big audiobook guy, but I know some people like that's the only way they read books. So it is now available on audiobook. Ah. Did you uh, did you do the recording yourself? No, um, I find that to be really tedious, like like kill yourself tedious. Just I <laughs> I would I mean it just takes hours and hours and hours, and it's also stressful because like you're reading something, and if you make a mistake, you have to start over, and it's just I'm like, I'll hire somebody else to do that. So the guy that I got to do it, his name is LJ Ganser, and he was the narrator for Street Freak when that came out on audiobook. Mm. So he's really, really good. Nice. Uh, what's uh, t- Tell me about, uh, since the launch of the book, how have the reviews been? Was any sort of constructive feedback you've received? The reviews, this has been the best reviewed book I've ever written out of the three. Um, it's currently got 4.7 stars on Amazon. Um, and yeah, I mean, almost uniformly positive. I mean, it's, it's, it's an, it's a very uplifting book. I mean, it's, you know, it's sad in some parts and, you know, it's kind of challenging in some parts, but you know, the core message is uplifting and it's, you know, it's a feel good book and people, people like it. So yeah, the reviews have been fantastic. 
you know, you, you, you write a financial newsletter five days a week here. Tell me about the balance between writing, going from, you know, writing about markets to writing a book about, well, typically not about the markets. Is that difficult for you? Uh, the difficult thing is, you know, my newsletter, you know, I'm a, I'm a very good writer, but the newsletter, I don't really put a lot of effort into the writing. It's really more about the content. It's about the charts and the ideas and the investment thesis, but I'm not really focusing on the writing, but for when I'm writing a book, like I am really focusing on the writing to make it as good as possible. Um, and there's significant edits and reworking and there's a whole bunch of effort that goes into, you know, making something perfect, you know, with the daily dirt nap, like I have a daily deadline. I basically have to write 1500 words a day and I just don't have the time to wordsmith it and make it perfect. Like I would something for a book. So, yeah. Yeah. Well, and tell me about the daily dirt nap lately. I, you know, I obviously read it every morning. Uh, everybody who listens to the podcast knows that. And it's just, it's, it's a really great understanding of, you know, what's transpiring in markets and how you're approaching these markets. Uh, it, it seems, you know, you've kind of, you kind of have pervade a sense of somewhat boredom, I guess I could say a little bit. I, Publishing two pages the last uh, few days—that's typically pretty, pretty short newsletter for you. I mean, what is kind of going through your head right now, as far as you know? Obviously, there's a lot. Of, there's a lot of things people are paying attention to, but market-wise, it's just kind of we're just kind of stuck. Yeah, I mean, I've called this the boringest, excitingest market ever. Like, there's a lot of stuff going on. I mean, the debt ceiling is obviously the biggest thing, but there's this whole AI thing and. There's, uh, you know, continued tensions with China and, you know, the Fed possibly pivoting. Like, there's a ton of stuff going on. But for whatever reason, I don't know if it's because of the derivatives market or whatever, but all the volatility have been sucked out of the market. And, you know, we are realizing, like, you know, like single digit volatility in the S&P 500. And, um you know, I've been through this before. Uh, I, I was. This is kind of what the environment was like in 2005 and 2006. Um, the market was moving 10 or 20 basis points a day. Um, so I guess the point that I've been trying to make to people is that this can last a lot longer than you think. I mean, we could be, we could be in this type of environment for a couple of years, you know, and um, it doesn't mean there's nothing to do. You know, there's definitely dispersion between the sectors. And, you know, for example, I, you know, I, I made a call that I think regional banks have bottomed for the short term. So I think we're going to get a bounce from regional banks. And obviously the AI thing is, you know, totally taking off. But, you know, there's things to do. But, you know, I kind of make my living around calling big turning points in markets, whether it's the S&P or bonds or FX or whatever. And in this environment where the index isn't moving, like it's really, it's really tough for me because that's kind of what I'm best at is like gauging sentiment and calling turning points in the index. So where is sentiment right now? (laughs) The markets are stuck. Sentiment seems stuck. I think it, I think it's net bearish. Um, I've seen a couple polls in the last couple of days that indicate that um, it's, it's, it's pretty significantly bearish actually. And it kind of makes me wonder, 
Um, if there hasn't been a lot of short positioning going on ahead of the debt ceiling and, you know, I'm starting to develop this thesis that if the debt ceiling is resolved, then we're going to have a very strong, impulsive move higher. Uh, I think that's likely. Um, so, yeah. Let's talk about this debt ceiling. And I also would love to get your thoughts here on some of the other news items that are moving markets, including artificial intelligence. But uh, the debt ceiling really is quite this ongoing saga. We get these these stories, you know, once every six years or so, it seems like Jared and you and I have both lived through a couple of them. Uh, but this time it, I, me and myself, I'm kind of, I'm stuck between this. Yes, they are going to get something passed. It will be in the 11th hour and they'll get it done because it's the 11th hour and they need to do something or else the consequences are too extreme for, them politically to not do something. But at the same time, you know, we've lived through 20 years of just crazy political hyperbole where nothing surprises me anymore. And so I guess I wouldn't be surprised to be surprised (laughs) to see them not come to terms with this thing and actually come, you know, maybe see a default. And I'm not trying to say this to be any, to share any scare tactics or anything, but I just, I'm just, nothing surprises me anymore. Everything is at the yeah. will of politicians and they are unwilling to come to any terms with one another anymore. You know, I don't think it's scare tax. If you look at, you know, where, you know, CDS on U.S. debt are trading, like, I mean, I think there's reason to be scared. You know, I, I think the probability of a default has never been higher in my entire career in markets. You know, I think that's just a fact. Um, I don't, I'm not a, I'm not a political analyst and, you know, the people who are really good at politics, like really, really know their stuff and they, you know, they have a lot more insight than I do. The, The only insight that I have is that the two sides are just extremely far apart. And, you know, I, you know, Biden is basically his budget has a two trillion dollar structural deficit, um, and the Republicans are trying to reduce that by something. But like, there's it's very hard for them to meet in the middle. Um, and I don't know, like I I just <sighs> there we could get to June first and not have an agreement. And you could have, you know, four week bills basically that were supposed to mature, not mature and money market funds break the buck and they gate redemptions. I mean, this is kind of the nightmare scenario that actually could happen. Um, Now, ultimately, if there is default, whether whatever kind of default it is, it'll, it'll probably get resolved in a couple of weeks and things will go back to normal. But, you know, this is, it's, it's real. It's not scare tactics at all. You know, this could absolutely happen. I remember under Obama, we, United States lost their triple A rated credit rating. (laughs) I mean, that was, that was a while ago. People I think have quickly forgotten that, but I mean, there were ramifications, but obviously that was used to politicize the event. I mean, do you th- well, there, that was actually that was actually super super interesting because if you remember, Obama was president and Tim Geithner was Treasury Secretary, 
and they walked in in the morning and S&P had downgraded our debt and Tim Geithner picked up the phone and this is a true story. He picked up the phone and started screaming at the head of S&P and within a couple of months, the US government had sued S&P for some kind of mortgage related violation and they had to pay like 180 billion in fines. So, you know, the, the rating agencies, you know, if there was ever a time to downgrade U.S. debt, either by, you know, Fitch or Moody's or S&P, like this would be it. But they're absolutely not going to do it because of what happened to S&P in 2011. Hmm. So hmm. how is this? You've you've been through this type of situation before. You wrote about it in the Daily Dirt Nap a couple a couple days ago. And I'm wondering if you might be able to share what you wrote in that experience of when you were with Lehman and just kind of the buildup, how this somewhat feels somewhat similar here. Yeah. I mean, there's, there's some similarities. I mean, let's talk about the banking system for a second and, you know, the bank failures that we've had. Um, you know, someone said this to me the other day, it's a really cool quote. It, it takes a while for the pig to work its way through the Python. <laughs> you know what I mean? <laughs> so like, if you think about 2008, you know, you know, New Century failed, you know, those the subprime mortgage lenders failed, then Bear Stearns failed in March of 2008, then Lehman failed in September of 2008. But the market didn't bottom until March of 2009. Like, really, it took 21 months for that banking crisis to work its way through the system. So, you know, today, you know, Silicon Valley Bank failed a couple of months ago, and we've had some other bank failures. Um and I think we're going to get a bounce in regional banks. Just like we got a huge bounce after Bear Stearns failed. You had a 17% bounce in the S&P 500 after Bear Stearns failed. So I think we're going to get a bounce. But, you know, the effect of higher interest rates on the banking system, that still has to work its way through the Python, so to speak. And I, it's it's not over. It's not over. Um, so we're going to get round two of this and we'll get round three. And it's going to get worse, but you know that's that's essentially what happened in two thousand eight. You think round two and three of further banking issues? Yeah, I think so. Yeah, yeah. Uh, there's a lot of concern about a second round of inflation here. Uh, this is obviously timely because the the Fed came out and I guess unofficially paused. Uh, there is concern that you know obviously. It, the the higher interest rates hasn't fully worked its way through the system. We could see more inflationary pressures uh, in the, I mean, in most, in, in, in most countries. I mean, is there something like, do you kind of follow, how close are you following this? Do you think there, there could be another round where inflation continues to increase? Like this is similar to what happened in the, in the seventies. Yeah. I mean, I, it's been my position that we're going to get a resurgence of inflation at some point, maybe in maybe in 24, maybe in 25, maybe in 26. That's kind of the experience that we had in the 1970s. Inflation peaked in 1969, and then it peaked again in 1973, 74, and then it peaked again in 1979. And each wave was bigger than the last. And inflation didn't go away until you broke the inflationary psychology. So if you think about what Volcker did when he raised interest rates to 14% or whatever, like this, the recession that we had, it didn't last very long, but it was a very severe recession. We had negative 6% GDP in 1981, or I, I may be getting it wrong by year, 80 or 81 or 82, but we had negative 6% GDP. Um, 
it was a very severe recession and we need something like that to break the psychology. Like it's absolutely true. Like if you look at real time measures of inflation, you know, they, they used to be up around 12%. Now they're down around 3.8%. So inflation has come down a lot, but people still expect price increases and you're still trying, you're still seeing corporations trying to pass along price increases you know, they call it greedflation, right? Mm-hmm. Like prices are going up, so let's raise prices too. We'll raise prices as much as we can, as much as, as long as people are willing to pay it. And people are willing to pay it. So until that psychology is broken, like inflation is not going away and it will come back. What it takes is some kind of inflationary impulse. So the inflationary impulse that kicked this off was the stimulus payments that we had during the pandemic. That's what kicked this off. I don't know what it's I don't know what the the next inflationary impulse is going to be. Maybe it's the Fed cutting interest rates, I don't know. But if you have some kind of spark, if you have some kind of catalyst to start inflation going again, it will go up again. Yeah, there's there's a number of certain things that I think could push it higher. I mean, I'm just wondering if the uh I mean, Ukraine could still be an issue with their agriculture exports if that can increase the cost of food, which would be obviously inflationary. Uh, honestly, I'm I've I've been traveling quite a bit in the last month, Jared. <clears throat> travel the de- travel for demand travel is just incredibly high. Even in this early spring, the airports are incredibly busy. International flights are are chocked full of people, and I just I'm not seeing any sort of lack. I don't see a lack of demand driving downtown Denver. There's the the cranes are still everywhere. You know, building multifamily homes and condos. Cars are everywhere. Home sales. There's a lack of inventory, but whatever homes do come on the market are getting bought up pretty dang quickly, not as fast as they were two years ago, but still getting bought. I'm just not seeing demand being crushed at all. And it, yeah, it's, it always, it, you, you would think that as fast as the Federal Reserve increases interest rates, it would have a huge effect. And obviously it did have some effect. It's brought the inflation down, but it hasn't crushed it. Yeah, and it does it does take time. It takes time because if you think about what's happened to the banking system under these interest rate hikes, you know, what you're going to see or what you are seeing is a big contraction in lending, okay, which has a huge economic effect when you have a big contraction in lending. And that's going to play out over the course of not like a month, but over like 2 years. You know, so all this stuff is like very it's very slow moving. But I hear you. You know, I used, I used to when when I moved to Pauly's Island with my wife like eight years ago, we used to go out to this restaurant called Bistro Two Seventeen, and we we get dinner. It would come out to thirty five bucks. I'd throw down a fifty, and we leave. And now it's literally double that. It's double that, yeah. and people are paying it. the The restaurant used to be closed on Sundays and Mondays. It's open seven days a week. And it's packed the entire time. You like you need like we used to be able to just walk in and sit down. Like you need a reservation seven days a week. It's you know it's nuts. Yeah, you know my my favorite scene from uh, the Big Short film is literally the very first scene. 
where they what's the, what's the first it, scene? It's literally just about the grand party that the United States was in, yeah. leading up to like all it was was people partying, you know, dancing, doing drugs, drinking, like it was a free for all, and that just really set the tone of really what was going on in two thousand six, two thousand seven. And it actually, I feel like today it's, it's replicate that. Everybody's still out and about thinking it's, you know, it's the great Gatsby version three or something like that. You know, if if you think about it, during the pandemic, the United States went into debt $3 trillion and just handed it out to people, mm-hmm. right? PPP loans, childcare credits, stimulus checks, just hand, like went into debt and handed out $3 trillion. That $3 trillion didn't disappear. It's still floating around. I mean, this is this is just what Milton Friedman predicted. This is monetarism. It's more money chasing the same amount of goods. And we still have more money in the system and it didn't go away. Yeah. Uh, you're, you're building a house right now. How is that? Have some of those prices come down? Uh we kind of we kind of priced out the house um after the after lumber prices had started to fall and copper prices so we're doing okay we're slightly over budget but not by a lot um we also hired you know we 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 basically had two options you know we had two contractors we could pick and one was bidding us x and one was bidding us 0.7x and we could have gone with the 0.7x guy, but we would have ended up paying X anyway, and it, everything would have gone over budget, and it would have been a disaster. Mm-hmm. The other guy is like, "Look, like this is just what it's going to cost, and we're going to stay on budget." So that's what we've done. So yeah, uh, yeah, we're starting to reduce, remodel some bathrooms, and we re- remod- remodeled a bathroom two years ago, and things are awfully, awfully more expensive now than they were two years ago. <laughs> yeah. Uh, Listen, I, I, the, I love the small talk, but the reason I wanted to get some of this kind of out there is because I want to get your sense about, you wrote something, I think it was last week. And once in a while, Jared, you write things where I read it in the morning and I've maybe only had one cup of coffee, but after I read it, I have to like sit back and take a breath and really give it some some very deep thought. And you had expressed this concern that something really, really bad could happen and it was on the horizon. And then about a week after that, you kind of seemed to pull back that idea a little bit that maybe you were overthinking it, it seemed like. And I just kind of wanted to open this up with you and talk about, you know, again, not to be a big doom and gloom, but what is it that you saw two weeks ago that really had you express your uber concerns and then what was it following that then had you pull back a little bit? It was, so it was a debt ceiling. Okay. It was a debt ceiling. Um, I was probably, I was talking about that a couple of weeks earlier than other people were. Um, and you know, after observing the behavior of the politicians, I was like, they're never going to come to an agreement. We're going to default. I was, I would say about a month ago, I was convinced that we were going to default. Like I was 100% convinced. And now I'm like 40% convinced that we're going to default. Still pretty high. Um, Still pretty high. Yeah. So, <laughs> but uh, but also, um, 
you know, that idea attracted a lot of sponsorship and people started positioning themselves more and more short. And I started to see some of the polls on sentiment and stuff. And I'm like, you know what? Like the, the, the asymmetry here isn't to the downside. It's actually to the upside. You know, when this gets resolved, like we're going to have a pretty significant rip to the upside. So. You so think that's possible here? Get this resolved yeah. and it's just going to moon. Yep. Yeah. I, it definitely feels that way. How do you hedge yourself in this situation? Well, it's hard because, you know, there, there's a bunch of, there's a bunch of times in markets where you're coming up against an event and the event that you have like a small probability of something horrible happening and a large probability of everything is fine. So like, like how do you insure yourself against that small probability of something horrible happening? Well, I mean, you can buy puts, you know, and, and that takes some creativity around how you're going to buy these puts. Um, do you buy tails? Do you buy, you know, what's where in the term structure, do you buy them? Like that's a little bit tricky. Um, you know, basically what I've done is I've just been gradually, um, selling stuff. I've just been gradually selling stuff, exiting positions, excuse me. And, uh, my exposure is probably 20 or 30% uh, less long than it was about a month ago. So just gradually exiting positions. It doesn't mean you're short. It just means you're not playing. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. What, what you, you and I continue to talk about gold here. Uh, gold retested that close to all time high for the third time is obviously pulled back trading underneath $2,000. Uh, it's fairly technical and healthy pullback, in my opinion here. I mean, do you have any reasons to be concerned about the gold move? Because it seems like you've always just kind of been, this is a long-term play here because there's a lot of moving factors. Yeah, I'm not I'm not crazy about the chart these days. The chart is a little uglier than it was a couple of weeks ago. We kind of have like a big rounded top. There seems to be distribution. Uh, the chart worries me a little. I think there's some support around 1960. I think we could get down to 1960. Um, I tell you what, if we do default, then, you know, we spend a lot of time talking about what gold will does, will do, but like gold never does what it's supposed to do. But if we default, gold should be up a hundred bucks on a rope, you know? Um, and, but if, if, if we don't default, if they come to an agreement, um, it could be, it could be down pretty significantly. So, uh, I'm, I'm, you know, I was like fire breathing gold the last time I came on your show. And yeah. like, I'm, a, I'm actually a little concerned about it here, but you know, like price does that. And you know, the price action for the last couple of weeks hasn't been great. So it's, you know, I'm a little, a little more cautious about it. What about gold sentiment? I guess what I'm hearing from where I sit here, Jared is within the gold market. There's not a whole lot of, Actually, there's there's little buying other than, you know, global central banks and then also the big institutional money that understand gold. Those are really the only two places that are, are putting a bid in for the metal. It's just no bid anywhere else. No retail, nothing. Um, you know, has it been that, could it be that the last time gold had a decent run was, you know, obviously almost a generation ago? And people just don't understand how it operates and its significance anymore. 
Uh, that's part of it. I mean, you know, the last time you were talking about it wasn't really a generation ago, but it was 12 years 12 ago, years which ago. is a really long time. Yeah. Um, I, you know, price, price changes sentiment. And I think if we were to gap up above 2100 in gold, then everything changes. And then you start to get some of that institutional sponsorship and people say, you know, especially especially if stocks go down too, you know, people look at the, you know, the ratio to the gold and the S and P and stuff like that. If you have gold going up and stocks going down, like that's going to change the mentality for a lot of people. Um, you know, the retail physical demand is still strong. You know, I mean, it's still, it, it never, it never slowed down. So I want to, I do want to ask you about artificial intelligence. We have not talked about AI on this podcast at all. Uh, a little bit of mention of how it's moving a few, you know, uh, the, the, the chip companies and that seems to be pulling up uh, the major markets here in this time of unknown. What, what are your thoughts on AI here? I mean, we've been talking about AI for 10 years, Jared, and all of a sudden in the last three months, it's just hit the market in the face and that's been the fad. Yeah, it's all because of ChatGPT that changed everything. You know, people saw the potential. Um, you know, I can tell you that I'm super bullish on AI. And, um, you know, I wish I wish this was 1999 because you would have 500 startups going public at a $200 million valuation. And you could just buy like these AI stocks and they would go up like 10,000%. I would love like a dot com bubble in AI. Like that would be lots of fun. There's there's not too many ways you can play it. I mean, the two plain vanilla ones are Microsoft and Nvidia. And, you know, Microsoft is a two point four trillion dollar market cap, and Nvidia is already over a hundred percent off the lows. Um, you know, having said that, you know, we found out recently that Stan Druckenmiller and David Tepper are buying these stocks. You know, like they're buying the upper right hand corner of the chart. Um, I think that should tell you something. Yeah. yeah. But we're not seeing a whole lot of like new, li- I mean, are we seeing new listings in AI? No, no. Very interesting. I mean, why, why is that? Is it because it's a much harder point of entry? Well, ultimately open AI will go public, right? Um, it, it really, it more has to do with Silicon Valley and the venture capital cycle, like companies, like big tech companies just don't go public until they're already like a 50 or a hundred billion dollar valuation. I mean, open AI in its last round, I think was a $40 billion valuation. So, I mean, yeah, if, if open AI went public at a $40 billion valuation, I would buy it. But my guess is by the time it goes public, it's going to be a hundred or 200 billion. And then it just gets, uh, the decision gets a lot more difficult. You know, mm-hmm. like basically Silicon Valley overcooks startups, you know, <laughs> they don't, they don't go public until like way after they should have gone public. Uh, and which means the VCs get all the returns and retail investors, there's nothing left over for them. So yeah. do you feel this is, you know, th- this tech move is fundamentally taking away from the value trade? In the commodities trade, I've, absolutely, absolutely. Yeah. yeah, tell me, tell me more. I mean, what is it? It doesn't take much to take away from the commodities trade anymore, or the value trade. But 
you know, it's it's interesting because it's you know, I, I tweeted the other day. It what was um people were more concerned about the woman taking over Twitter as CEO. And all of a sudden she became a household name instead of two of the largest resource producers in the metals space, Glencore and tech. There's been this ongoing saga between the, the merging of those two companies. And it's just like, and I, I can understand why people spend more time talking about Twitter than they would be about tech and Glencore. But it wasn't always the case. It's just kind of shocking to me, like if those will ever kind of, if that sentiment will ever kind of sway, where more people be interested in the the head of the company that actually produces the things they need to live, compared to the company that just provides a communication media platform. Yeah, what you're what you're talking about is dreams. You know what I mean? Like growth, growth is dreams, and value is the real world. And for you know, for about four years in the 2000s, I would say from 2003 to 2007, like that was when value was outperforming. And people did talk about Glencore back then. They talked about the Glencore IPO. That was like one of the, that was like one of the biggest events. I think it was 2007 or 2008. I can't remember. But like people talked about Cleveland Cliffs and Steel Dynamics and, you know, US Steel and, you know, Phelps Dodge and Inco. Like, that th- those those were the stocks that people cared about you know and we're we're still you know i think this kind of plays back into my earlier comments about you know how we really need to experience a severe recession mm-hmm. it's it's really it's it's about time preference do you know who peter, peter atwater is oh yeah 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 peter atwater is really really good at this stuff he would probably be able to explain it better than i can but yeah, they, like we we haven't broken this growth psychology. Like people are still enamored of these stocks, and uh, I don't I don't know what it's going to take to do it. People are still dreaming, like the opening scene of The Big Short. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> so, what was it about in, in the early two thousands? What you know? It was obviously, I guess it could be it was coming off of the tech bubble, and and seeing those stocks just really get trashed. Was that where we saw more of the focus going into the value? Value. Oh yeah. I mean, you know, from top to bottom, from 2000 to 2002, the NASDAQ 100 was down 80% and hundreds of stocks were down 95 to 99%. And these are companies that didn't go to zero. Like they didn't, they didn't go bankrupt. Like they went down 99% and they came back. (laughs) Like, like they were, so, I mean, tech had just been absolutely obliterated, just totally obliterated. And that's when people started to focus on mining and energy and stuff like that. And home builders, that was another one in the 2000s, you know, people were buying home builders. So you think it will take something similar, a crash to happen to regain the household names of the value trade. Yep. Yeah, I, I, unfortunately, I kind of tend to agree with you, Jared. All right, uh, my friend, you, uh, you're you off on a trip. Uh, you got a book signing here to get to, but uh, you know, give us some last parting words. What are, when it comes to markets, what are we paying attention to other than the debt ceiling? Anything that's really jumping out at you uh, that you're excited about or maybe has you a little bit concerned and on the edge of your seat here? Really, I'm just... Uh... 
I wish I had something for you. I'm I'm a hundred percent focused on the debt ceiling. Um, it's um, like I said, it's a small percent chance that something really bad is going to happen, and a larger chance that everything's going to be okay. Um, and you know, I watch the headlines just like everybody else does, and it doesn't seem like the negotiations are making a lot of progress. And the clock is ticking. We have two weeks. We have two weeks to get this figured out. So um, it'll it'll be interesting. Um, after the debt ceiling, then we can start focusing on some other stuff. So it doesn't seem like they want to work with each other. That's the unfortunate thing about it. Yeah, that's really that's just kind of shows you where we're at here in, in politics. All right, uh, Jared Dillian, author of the Daily Dirt Nap, wonderful newsletter. I appreciate your time, Jared. Thanks so much. Safe travels and uh, have yourself yep. a blast in Nashville. Thank you. Back here with our second segment of our Friday Long Form episode this week on Mining Stock Daily. Happy to welcome in CEO of Ixios Asset Management, Mr. David Finch. David, welcome back to the podcast. Thanks for doing this. Thanks very much, Trevor. Always a pleasure. Uh, you know, we unfortunately we haven't spent a whole lot of time on the podcast discussing this huge deal out of the gold mining sector. Uh, about $18 billion worth of a deal as Newmont finally is set to acquire Newcrest. It's been a little bit of a saga the last couple months as, uh, you know, I think that offer has surprised a number of people and Newcrest held firm, but then we kind of figured it was going to happen once it was reported that Newcrest was going to allow Newmont into the data room to see everything. So uh, let's talk about really what this represents other than, a mega gold producer just really dwarfing any other of their peers. What does this mean for the sector in general, David? Yeah, look, I think one of the things that it does is is, is shine a light on a perennial problem uh, in the gold mining sector, which is, which is mine life, right? And I think that, you know, the main driver um, for this transaction was that Newmont, uh, you know, as the largest gold miner, uh, really needed to address its longer-term uh, outlook and its its growth pipeline. Um, and you know, whatever you think of Newcrest and how they've managed their assets over the past few years, you know, they do have some very long-life assets, um, and they also have um, in uh, Wafi Goldpool, uh, they have a a very large scale, very high grade copper gold porphyry uh, development uh, project, which is quite a long way along the permitting track. So, you know, and um, uh, Lahir and, and Kadia are, you know, 25, 30 year mine lights. So, you know, they, they, they are kind of, uh, I, I, I think it's, you know, it's not a short-term kind of earnings enhanced kind of deal. Uh, this is about ensuring Newmont's pipeline for the next uh, fifteen to twenty years. Um, long-term, long-term trajectory of this deal. Yeah, and you can see, you know, so, I mean, since they 
announced the first kind of tentative offer. Um, you know, Newmont's underperformed the GDX by about 20%, right? So, <laughs> um, I, you know, and they must have guessed that something like that would, would, would happen. So it, it, it's not around creating short-term shareholder value. It's, it's very much about creating a, a much more solid, longer-term gold mining champion. Do you feel this uh, acquisition is um, culturally Im- uh, in balance with one another, Newmont and Newcrest, knowing that Newcrest, you know, back in the day did was spun out of Newmont. Funny how they are, are coming back together after three decades. But uh, do you think this is a? Do you think this is a, a good mix of of business here between a U.S. based large gold producer and Australian based producer? Yeah, I mean, that's, that's, that's a very good question. And, you know, that's always one of the potential pitfalls in a, in a, in a, big, uh, in a big deal like this. Um, I think that um, Newcrest has a, uh, a great culture of, of technical excellence. Um, you know, they're one of the few uh, large-scale miners with uh, blockading expertise um, at scale. Um, and, you know, certainly I think they've made some strategic errors, but they've been, they've been good operators. Um, how the individuals and the, and the, uh, and the teams at the mines fit in with the Newmont culture, I think is, is, yeah, it's, it's very difficult to say from the outside, to be honest. And how about how this fits in with diversifying Newmont's jurisdiction? Dictional operations, and I'm thinking specifically Golden Triangle here. Uh, you know, yeah. Newmont came in as an acquirer of I think it was GT Gold. That's yeah. that was more uh, de- exploration, late stage development type of play. Now Newcrest came in not too long ago and bought the Predium mine. So obviously yeah. Newmont will be an operator and producer in the Golden Triangle now with ass with you know exploration assets at hand after that acquisition of GT. Do you feel that maybe this, this acquisition of Newcrest really sets up Newmont to be the preeminent gold producer in the gold triangle and really put their, their foot down in that jurisdiction? Yeah. You know, I, I think that that's, uh, it's interesting. Um, you know, their 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 main assets in Canada are outside the one outside Pretium, which they will acquire, and, and and G two are kind of legacy gold corp assets. Um, so they've got Muscle White, Porcupine, Eleanor, and I think that those those are probably going to be up for sale because in the in in the scope of the the, the enlarged Newmont. Um, you know, they're, 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 they're old, relatively small production mines. Um, and, uh, you know, uh, uh, I, I think Newmont will rationalize their portfolio, uh, you know, if this acquisition um, indeed goes through. And so I, I think that, yes, they will acquire, you know, um, uh, Pretium, which is a bigger scale mine, and they will, they will have... Newcrest block paving expertise to develop the the GT gold asset, um, but on the other hand, I think that the the you know their other Canadian assets may well be up for sale. 
who would be potential acquirers of those assets? Uh, that's a very good question. I've been thinking about it. I'm not quite <laughs> sure, actually. But um, yeah, you know, it, 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 I think it's not, you know, I, I would very much doubt that it would be, uh, you know, and there's three mines there. I mean, they may not be sold off all in one package. They may be sold off individually to um, to, to other mid-cap operators. Right? Yeah. Yeah. I'm really curious to your general thoughts here, David, on why this type of deal. Obviously, we have known for the last couple of years that the big gold producers want and need to get bigger. And But why the question is how you, how they are going about doing this. And we're mm. seeing a lot of merging and acquisition with peers to reach that scale. What we're not seeing is them going out and actually purchasing, you know, earlier exploration development projects that would need to be permitted and, you know, finding yeah. the capital to get those built. Why are we not seeing that right now? Yeah, Why is it no, more it's... going straight for the production rather than the early development stuff? Yeah, I mean, it's it's it's. Uh... It's a good question, um, and I guess we, you know, we saw the Kinross uh, Great Bear uh, acquisition, which was, you know, one of those kinds of acquisitions. I think, you know, one thing is there's 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 a, not a ton of tier one development assets out there, mm-hmm. um, uh, but but I, I I share your view. You know, the 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 you know the larger scale assets are often uh, trading very very cheaply. Um, and uh, I'm also a bit surprised that uh, uh, that uh, the majors haven't kind of stepped into the market and bought some of those. Is it just too risky right now? I mean, what is? Yeah, the risk? it could it could be. Yeah, it it could be just a a kind of a you know obviously you know Ken Ross's purchase of Great Bear didn't go down very well in the market. <laughs> um, uh, for Ginross, you know, at the time, I guess people are re- reassessing it now. But um, so, so that 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 could be one thing. Um, and uh, yeah, I guess you know, when you look at the valuation of producing assets, they're also quite cheap, right? Um, so you know, and and much lower risk. Um, mm-hmm. So yeah, I guess um, you know. The, the the whole of the sector's getting a, a little bit smarter in terms of capital allocation and adjusting capital allocation for risk. And, you know, obviously buying and building a big project is, is a lot riskier than buying something that's already developed and in production, which has got a decent mine life. And and that's the case for the for, for the Newcrest assets. Yeah. Does this have any implications on the Nevada gold mines deal? Yeah. Do you know, I don't think so. To be honest, um, I don't see Newmont selling their share to Barrick. Really, I mean, it, it is a core. It, it's a core long life asset in a in a in a tier one jurisdiction. I, I'd be surprised if they. And, and it's not as if you know they're paying for Newcrest in shares, right? So uh, it's not as if they they need to raise cash to do this deal. Yeah. Okay. Very good. Well, it, and I want to go back and I want to ask you, can I revisit this? Why buying producers rather than looking for explorers? And I think the fact is, is, you know, even, you know, the great bear asset hasn't really reached up to that 
you know, mega tier one potential quite yet. There still needs to be a lot of exploration and done. And obviously yeah. we'll see if Kinross is able, able to get it there. But when we're talking about those assets that these major producers are, are would want, I mean, you were talking six, eight to 10 million ounces yep. projects and those projects, unfortunately they're few and far between. And I, I mean, I, I can only think of about <laughs> three of them that are in late stage development right now uh, that they already have some sort of strategic investment by multiple companies in there. So we'll see what happens with those here in the coming months and maybe a year or two. But other than that, David, there's really not a whole lot out there that reaches those expectations for large gold producers. So let's talk about those expectations. Do they need to be, um, do they need to come down to earth a little bit? Um. Well, I think they have done, right? I mean, you look at the price of most of the of the explorers, and uh, you know they they they're, uh, they haven't really participated, with a few honourable exceptions. They haven't really participated. You know, gold's gone from sixteen hundred to well, not two thousand anymore today, but nineteen fifty, <laughs> right, right. let's say. Um, and you know, a lot of these things have gone nowhere, right? So. Uh, you know, r- relative to their gold content, they've they've been derated over the past uh, four or five months, and and they were already at pretty low valuations. So, you know, I, I think that um, that there's certainly a lot of value in the exploration uh, sector. What's lacking is the catalyst, right? And um, and I think to, to to you know, when I look across the landscape of the of the large caps. You know, they need something in order to embark on, uh, you know, buying an explorer, doing the rest of the work, um, getting it permitted and building it. Yeah, they really need something that's minimum 350,000 ounces and preferably 500,000 ounces per annum production potential, which, as you said, means that, you know, you're looking at a resource of seven to 10 million ounces. and you've got some, you know, like De Grey in Australia, which is a complex asset, but, you know, it trades at a, I think, two and a half billion Aussie market cap, something like that. Um, but uh, that's one of the one of the very few. Yeah. Uh, all right. Well, let's we'll step away from this. Obviously, we'll see if there's another uh, another news item of mergers and acquisitions within the gold sector. If something tells me there's something else that's probably going to pop yeah. up before the end of the year. <laughs> I mean, this puts Newmont, you know, very substantially ahead of uh, of, of Barrack. And oh, yeah, um, very much so. You know, I yeah, you know, maybe I, what's I can't remember what's the market cap going to be. With the after this Newmont deal closes, um, estimate. So yeah, it's interesting because uh, if you look at it in terms of the um, the the um, GDX today, uh, Newmont is around ten percent, and uh, Newcrest is about four and a half. So the new mm-hmm. entity will be nearly 15% of the GDX if they don't cut the weighting back when, when, when it, you know, if they don't cap the weighting. Um, but the uh, the market cap of Newmont is $35 billion and Newcrest is about $16 billion in US dollars. So we'll call it $50 billion. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, 
give or take 50 billion where Barrick is about 32, 33. Uh, Barrick uh, today, 32. Yeah. 32. Yeah. Yeah. So it'd be very interesting. Um, Okay. Uh, the other news, a couple of things I'd like to get your thoughts on here, David, before we let you go is uh, we have been getting Q1 results out from these gold producers. Uh, cash flow looks really good. You know, uh, yeah. they had they had really good Q1. Margins are improving. Uh, the good ones have kept their costs down. Uh, the yeah. bad ones have not. <laughs> yeah. So <laughs> I guess that sums it up. That sums up Q1. <laughs> yeah. Look, I think, you know, obviously, particularly the second half of last year was really tricky. Um, you know, the gold price was was low for most of the second half of last year. And, uh, you know, that's when, uh, in some cases, the delayed or sometimes immediate effect of inflation really hit costs. Um, so we had a nasty margin squeeze between a low gold price and rising costs. And I think, you know, what we've seen in Q1 is is some relief on the cost pressures, particularly from energy and consumables. Um, and I think that that will continue to feed through into Q2. And of course, we've had a much higher gold price. So uh, that's meant that the sector's back to generating the same levels of uh, free cash flow that it was generating uh, back in 2020. And, um, you know, but... You know, the GDX is at uh, 31 and in 2020, I think it peaked at 45 or something like that. Yeah. So, you know, the, the, the market is, well, as always, probably with good reason, very skeptical. Um, but, um, you know, if, if, uh, if they can, you know, keep the costs at the current level and the gold price can stay where it is, we can, uh, you know, we can have another good quarter in Q2. Um, yeah, I had a discussion with Jared Dillian in the first part of this episode, and we talked about where the value trade went, and it seems like this continued run up in uh, continued tech stocks. This run up, it's still uh, overshadowing the value trade, which we would put some of these gold miners into. And what's your thoughts here? Do you think it's just getting overshadowed by more of the buy the dip and and push tech higher type of uh, type of investment? Well, it's interesting because what, what, what you've seen in the base metals mining space is that, you know, like the, the, the copper producers have been really resilient in the face of a pretty awful copper price. Right? Um, and uh, so I think that it, it, it's not so much that people hate value, it's that Nobody's very interested in the gold miners, <laughs> yeah, yeah. and um, you know. And I think, a, you know, part of that is that gold miners are all small. I mean, Newmont at, at, at a fifty billion market cap is in the S and P five hundred, but its weighting is zero point one percent of the S and P. Soon to go to zero point one four when they merge with Newcrest, right? Um, but that's the kind of thing that it's really easy for a, a generalist investor to ignore, right? And um, and I think that you know, unless you are a Canadian or Australian domestic fund manager, when when gold miners are a significant part of your benchmark, everywhere else in the world, nobody has to care about these things, right? Right. Okay. Um, What's uh, outlooks uh, since we have you on? Uh, you and I are recording this Thursday morning, my time. Gold's 
getting really smacked down as the dollar rages higher. Uh, what is, give me a sense of what you're seeing in this backdrop and this pullback in gold as we're back to 1950, you know, sub 2000. Yeah. Look, you know, the, 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 I mean, the dollar's gone from, I think it went to 101 on the, on the, on the DXY. It's now 103.40. So it, yeah, it's up two and a bit percent from its lows. Um, gold peaked at 2060 and it's 1950. Um, so, you know, that's knocked 5% off the gold price. Does seem a bit exaggerated to me. Um, and I think that, you know, you have got this big sea change in, uh, in the gold market in that we, we continue to see central banks accumulate gold. And, mm-hmm. uh, I mean, you know, the story, I mean, after the sanctions on, uh, on Russia, central banks began to realize that actually holding Holding the bonds issued by other countries was eh, not necessarily a good idea, <laughs> mm-hmm. uh, particularly if you were going to get into an argument with them, because then what was invested in those bonds could just be uh, frozen and, you know, reserves are supposed to be reserves. Uh, and, uh, and the only kind of monetary asset where you don't run that risk is, is gold. And so we've seen central banks buying gold in, in size. and. Um, Sometimes not, you know, we've seen, for instance, the Central Bank of Singapore has made some really large purchases. Um, Mm. So it's not just uh, countries that are potentially enemies of the US, like China, who are are buying gold. Uh, There's a a broad, I think, reassessment of the composition of of countries' reserves. And um, I think we're just at the beginning of that process. And so I, I, I think that there is, you know, there's a, there's a, there's a new kind of buyer of last resort in the market, and um, I think that'll stop things from getting out of hand on the downside in gold. From lenders of last resort to buyers of last resort. Huh? Yeah, exactly. Yeah, 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 yeah. <laughs> you know, and I think you see China's continued to announce every month that they're accumulating more gold, and you see other central banks coming into the market. You know, India. Singapore and, and a ton of smaller ones. And, and I think that that's, uh, you know, that's a process that is going to carry on for uh, the next two or three years. Makes you wonder why. I mean, we already <laughs> know. I mean, I think we can, I, 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 we can pontificate as to why. I think we know the answer. Uh, but how it all comes into fruition is yet to be seen. But it's kind of a slow boulder uh, that's about ready to tip over, it seems like. Uh, yeah. David, I, I appreciate your time. Thanks so much for giving us some of it. And uh, uh, best of luck over there. And we'll talk to you again soon. Okay, man. You take care. All right. That's Bye-bye. David Finch. That's David Finch. And this, that's a wrap here this week on the podcast, everybody. Uh, have a great weekend. We'll be back Monday morning with the morning briefing. Be well. The information presented should not be considered investment advice. Mining Stock Daily and its affiliates are not responsible for any loss arising from any investment decision in connection with the material presented herein. Please do your own research or speak with a licensed financial representative before making any investment decisions.